This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. And there is, as I mentioned, plenty, plenty to go around. Another, at least so far, because there's one game to go, but so far, another lost day in the Major League Baseball season here in New York. Things continue to get worse for both the Yankees and the Mets, although the Mets got some surprisingly good news on the injury front today with the return of Pete Alonso. Didn't uh, help them as they lost 8-7 to the Cardinals and lost their series to one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball, their three-game series over the weekend. And then the Yankees up in Boston. And, again, they have one more game in the split doubleheader coming up tonight after they were rained out yesterday. They get pummeled on Friday night, just an absolutely putrid performance offensively, defensively for the Yankees on Friday night. Just an ugly performance every which way. Yesterday, the respite because of rain. And today, the Yankees jump out to a 2-0 lead, three batters into the game. The Yankees, with their offense struggling so mightily, Three batters in of a 2-0 lead on Glaber Torres' two-run home run. And they got nothing the rest of the afternoon. They finish with four hits. They lose 6-2. to two, And they're on the verge of getting swept by the Red Sox. It is Luis Severino against Bayo tonight in Boston in the nightcap. Severino's last two starts have been very, very spotty. So we'll see if he can respond. We'll see if the Yankees can respond. Wrapping up that three-game set in Fenway Park. Uh, The Yankees' offense right now is absolutely non-existent without Aaron Judge. So you have those two things. You have the U.S. Open final round going on right now. And what a star-studded leaderboard it is. Rory McIlroy is now in a tie for the lead at 10 under. And they're just getting started because it's out west. It's in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles Country Club, which I absolutely love. I love major golf on the west coast. At this point in my life, my kids being the ages they are, they always have games and activities and whatnot. They're 9 and 11. So I, unfortunately, like I used to in my 20s, would have the time to dedicate to sitting in front of the couch for uh, in front of the television for four hours on a Sunday and watching the final round of a major. I simply don't have that time anymore. So I personally, selfishly, love the fact that they're just getting started right now and we can follow along the final round of the U.S. Open together here. But McElroy is on top. Ricky Fowler, who started the day, in a tie for first, uh, already one over for the round, so he has a shot behind McElroy. Scotty Scheffler is at minus seven, so you got some of the biggest names in the sport. Tommy Fleetwood shot a final round 63. He's the clubhouse leader right now at five under par as they make their way through the final round. And about an hour, hour and a half ago, the blockbuster report in the NBA that it appears Bradley Beal will not remain on the trading block for long because he is headed for Phoenix. Another monster deal pulled off by the Phoenix Suns to acquire Bradley Beal from the Washington Wizards. I mean, that happened very fast. It seemed like 48 hours ago, a lot of conversation on this station, whether or not Beal would be a good fit for the Knicks. I don't think he would have been offensively. Of course he would have been, but I didn't like the thought of a Bradley Beal Uh, Jalen Brunson backcourt from a defensive perspective. It's just like I don't like the idea of a Damian Lillard, Jalen Brunson backcourt from a defensive perspective. But Beal doesn't last long on the open market, uh, or on the trading block, I should say. Adrian Wojnarowski reporting that the Wizards are finalizing a trade to send Beal to the Suns for a package that is expected to include Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, several second-round picks, and pick swap. 
That is according to Woj on ESPN.com. So that is the um, that is the big news out of the NBA. Uh, and look, the new collective bargaining agreement, this is interesting on a number of fronts. First of all, I'm not sure of the fit. Bradley Beal in Phoenix with Kevin Durant, with Devin Booker, with DeAndre Ayton. Are they done moving? I, I don't know. Uh, are they satisfied going into the season with a big three of Beal and Booker? And Durant with DeAndre Ayton as a fourth max contract? I don't know. All I know is this, a couple of things. Number one, it sounds like uh, Phoenix and Chris Paul were, were heading towards a separation anyway. You know, Paul was due $30 million this upcoming season, but only 15 of that was guaranteed. So the thought was that if they weren't able to trade Chris Paul by the June 28th trade deadline where his contract would become fully guaranteed, then they would simply release him and have to eat those $15 million as opposed to being on the hook for $30 million next season. So from that perspective, the fact that you are, you don't have to eat the $15 million, the fact that you're able to get a 30-year-old all-star guard like Bradley Beal in exchange for a guy who you might have had to just release if they weren't able to find a deal in the next week, week and a half, that's a positive. Now, how does that fit in in Phoenix? Because you have Devin Booker, and now you have Bradley Beal. You have two prototypical shooting guards in the backcourt with Kevin Durant, obviously the either the first option or option 1A, depending on how you stack Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. Look, here's the thing. You watched the playoffs last season, if you did, in the second round especially, when Denver won in six games over the Suns. Durant and Booker, for much of that series, were outstanding. But by the fifth and sixth games of that series, they simply ran out of gas because they had to carry the entire team, especially after Chris Paul went down. So when you're talking about, all right, well, Bradley Beal replacing Chris Paul you can't really look at it that way because Chris Paul wasn't a part of their ultimate series in the playoffs this season. I don't know how much of a difference he would have made. Denver was the best team, obviously, in the NBA in that series. They appeared to be a team on the mission headed towards the NBA Finals, regardless of who was in the lineup for Phoenix. But if you're looking at how Beal replaces Paul in that type of series, you can't really look at it because you're... Beal is more additive than replacing Chris Paul because Chris Paul didn't really play outside of the first game and a half of that series. He didn't really play. So now you add Bradley Beal. That's a positive. Yes, from a numbers perspective, from a talent perspective, obviously that's a positive. But the biggest negative for Phoenix and their new owner, Matt Ishbia, is very interesting. I mean, think about this guy. He takes over full-time control of the team in February. So we're talking four months ago. Matt Ishbia takes over full control of the Suns. The youngest owner in the NBA wants to make his mark. Obviously, an extremely successful businessman selling mortgages. Um, successful enough that he was able to buy the Suns for a record price. And right away, he makes his mark with the Kevin Durant trade. And then four months later, he makes his mark again with the Bradley Beal trade. But if you watched Phoenix in the playoffs against Denver... The biggest detriment for them was their lack of depth, especially once Chris Paul went down. You had Durant, you had Booker, 
And again, there was one game in that series where those two guys combined to score 80 points. There was another game in that series where those two guys combined to score 65 points. But because they had to carry so much of the load by game five and game six, they were completely spent and they were out of gas. And Denver had their way with them at the end of that series. They had absolutely no depth beyond Durant and Booker. So now you add Beal. Okay, there's a really, really solid, quote-unquote, big three. Right, DeAndre Ayton is there as well. You want to include him as a, I, I won't call it a big four, but you want to include that as a top four. It is virtually impossible to fill out that roster beyond those four guys. Virtually impossible, especially with what's coming in two years when the new collective bargaining agreement kicks in. It's an extremely complicated deal that has been talked about a lot lately. And I'm not going to explain all of the intricacies of it. To be honest with you, I can't explain all of the intricacies of the new collective bargaining agreement. But essentially, what the new collective bargaining agreement will uh, prevent teams from doing is stacking rosters with big threes at the top. Too much top, too much talent at the top of the roster, otherwise known as too much high-paid talent at the top of the roster, is going to make it virtually impossible for teams to fill out their rosters with depth. And we saw that in the playoffs. We saw teams that were good get into the playoffs, but severely lacking in depth. Milwaukee in the first round when they lost to the Miami Heat after... Chris Middleton, who was not 100%, and after Drew Holiday and Giannis when he was healthy, they were severely lacking in depth. Same thing with Phoenix. Same thing with the Lakers. Outside of LeBron James and Anthony Davis and Austin Reeves, who really came on, some good performances from Rui Hachimura for the Lakers, but they were severely lacking in depth. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Suns maneuver this. Now, they have a couple of years before they have to worry about the ramifications of the new collective bargaining agreement, but all teams in the NBA, that's why there's question. There's questions out of Boston, whether or not the Celtics are best served by signing Jalen Brown to a max contract extension. One that he earned this past season by being named second team, all NBA, but there is rational thought out there that feels Boston is better served. Not, offering a max contract to Jalen Brown because having him at a max number and having Jason Tatum at a max number will be too debilitating. And now you spin that towards what Phoenix has to deal with, and you've got Devin Booker, you've got Kevin Durant, you've got Bradley Beal, and yes, DeAndre Ayton is also on a max contract. So how they're going to fit all of those pieces together and have enough depth around them is going to be very, very interesting. It's going to be very, very difficult. And here's the other thing about those guys. None of those guys, and you could say this about pretty much anybody in the NBA right now, but especially in recent years, none of those top three guys, Beal, it's been a while since he's played more than 60 games. Durant, Durant is similar to me to John Carlos Stanton, right? When he plays, he produces. When Stanton plays, he produces. But you know there's going to be guaranteed at least one month every regular season where you don't have Durant. And there's going to be one month every regular season where you don't have John Carlos Stanton. You can, you can set a clock to it each and every year. Now, the Yankees, and we're not going to talk too much about them right now, but the Yankees are hoping that they've already withstood Stanton's month-long foray to the injured list. Durant, the same thing. 
every year he's out for at least a month at a time. And then Devin Booker has not been the model of health. He has missed games at times. So you're talking about a team that's going to be severely lacking in depth, okay, and relying so heavily on the names at the top of the roster that do not have a strong track record, especially recently, of staying healthy. It's a very, very risky proposition for the Suns. It's also it's also the biggest all-in move for a title contender that we've seen. You know, Phoenix is probably looking at this like, look, we beat Denver, the NBA champions, two games in our building. We had that series tied at two games apiece, and we were one piece away. And Bradley Beal became available. And Washington, meanwhile, on the other side, has finally decided that they're going to break down their roster and build back up with assets. But the interesting thing here is this. Um, Washington doesn't get a treasure trove of first-round draft picks. Why? Because Phoenix didn't have any to offer. All of Phoenix's first-round draft picks, they're in Brooklyn with the Nets because of the Kevin Durant trade. So it was a few second-round picks. There's going to be a pick swap or two. There's Chris Paul. There's Landry Shamit. But really, the biggest thing that Washington got out of this deal was the fact that they're not going to have to pay Bradley Beal $50 million when he's 34 years old. And that in itself is a nice way to start over. So the blockbuster NBA trade not finalized. In fact, Woj sent a follow-up tweet a little while ago saying that one of the things holding up this trade being complete is the idea that the teams are seeing if a third team wants to join and make it a three-team trade because it's. I think it's unlikely that Chris Paul ends up playing in Washington. This is a salary dump, and it's interesting, the circle of Chris Paul's career, right? The point guard, Hall of Fame trajectory, and then in Houston, things fall apart with him and James Harden, and he becomes a salary dump. They send him to Oklahoma City in exchange for Russell Westbrook. Paul completely remakes his career. He's a mentor to Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's now one of the best point guards in the NBA. Uh, Chris Paul goes to OKC. They send him to Phoenix. They go to the NBA Finals. The next year, they have the best record in the NBA. But all the while, it's the same story for Chris Paul every year. Even he had that great second chapter of his career. But when the games got important and the playoffs were here and the finals were here, Chris Paul was unable to stay healthy to be there for his team, and it cratered this season. Once again, he got hurt, and he wasn't as effective this season. So this is kind of the second time in his career that Chris Paul has been a salary dump, which is interesting for a guy with his resume, but that's what he is right now. What's holding up the trade is to see if a third team will enter a contending team that is interested in acquiring Chris Paul. Otherwise, there's a chance that Washington and Chris Paul simply agree on a buyout. So thoughts on that as we head towards the NBA draft, which is Thursday at Barclays Center. Knicks do not have a first-round pick. Uh, as I mentioned, the Brooklyn Nets have a treasure trove of picks over the next several seasons, courtesy of their trade uh, of Kevin Durant to the Phoenix Suns. And then the bad news with the baseball, with the Mets. And this is this the low point of the season for the Mets? I think it might be. 
Uh, the Yankees are approaching the low point as well. The good news for the Yankees is the record is still several games above 500. So all is not lost with them. But boy, they look like a bad team right now. Both, I think the the Yankees look like a bad team. I'm starting to think that the Mets are a bad team, right? What do the Mets have? And we'll get into that. We'll take a break. We'll get into that in a moment. But seriously, think about this. What do the Mets have right now that makes you excited for their prospects going forward? It's amazing how quickly this has fallen apart. You had the new manager. You had the 101-win season. You had so much excitement at City Field last year. And then the season fell apart at the very end, getting swept by the Braves, losing two out of three to the Padres. And then all of a sudden, you're gone from the wild card round. But still, a spending spree in the offseason that gives everybody hope and excitement. And I'll tell you, it just hasn't clicked at any point so far this season. And the Mets may be looking at rock bottom right now. We'll take your calls, 1-800-919-3776. Pat O'Keefe on Father's Day on 98.7 ESPN New York. This is is the Pat O'Keefe Show. In the month of June, the Mets are 4-11. May 31st, they beat Philadelphia. June 1st, they beat Philly 4-2. That was that three-game sweep at Citi Field where they had three terrific pitching performances, Senga, Carrasco, and Scherzer. They allowed three combined runs over the three games to sweep the Phillies. And that got their record to 30-27. and 27. Since then, they're 3-11. and 11. They went to Toronto. They lost three really tough close games. Or excuse me, they didn't go to Toronto. That was at City Field. Three really tough close losses to Toronto got swept. Then they went to Atlanta, their house of horrors, got swept. And then they hit the game that uh, in Pittsburgh where, where Gary Cohen implied that that was rock bottom, losing to the Pirates 14-7. to they bounced back to finally stop the losing streak the next game, but then lost the series finale last Sunday in Pittsburgh. So they go to Pittsburgh and lose two out of three. And then they just play that ugly series against the Yankees. Tuesday, they had the 5-1 to one lead that Scherzer couldn't protect, and the Yankees win that game 7-6 to six when Clay Holmes came on and struck out Lindor and Marte with the bases loaded and one out with the Mets trailing by a run. And then that really ugly game that the Mets did actually win on Wednesday. That 4-3, to 10-inning victory uh, when Isaiah Kiner-Falefa stole home. There was the pitching duel that night between Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. So you think, okay, maybe that's an opportunity to turn the corner. Big win, much-needed win against the Yankees. And the Cardinals are coming into City Field, and the Cardinals have been absolutely putrid this season. And Friday night, Tyler McGill pitched. It was a 6-1 to one victory. It was really one of their cleanest, crispest wins of the season, certainly in quite some time. So that on the heels of the come-from-behind win over the Yankees on Wednesday to earn the split of the Subway Series. You've got two wins in a row. You've got two more games against these Cardinals on the weekend. Maybe you can start stringing something together. And now's the time, right, because the schedule does not get easier. They hit the road now. They go to Houston for three. They go to Philadelphia for three. And then Milwaukee comes in for four, followed by San Francisco. So there are tough teams home and away coming up on the Mets schedule. And they completely lay an egg this weekend against St. Louis. St. Louis has been one of the worst teams in baseball. Outside of Oakland, they have been maybe the worst team in baseball this season. And it's always something with the Mets. Their bullpen has been bad all season long. Bad outside of David Robertson. Bad all season long. 
Their lineup has not been good. Now, the last couple of weeks, Alonzo hasn't been there. He came back today. So that will certainly, you imagine, help things out a little bit. You did get a home run by Francisco Lindor today. You had offensive production today. You scored, you scored seven runs. But Carrasco was bad on the mound. And the Mets did battle. And they came back a couple of times to tie this score a couple of times. And then Adam Adovino gives up a home run to Nolan Arenado in the ninth inning. Arenado's second home run of the afternoon. And that's the difference. Just when it looked like the Mets were going to have a nice offensively led come from behind victory to win the weekend series against the Cardinals. All of a sudden you lose eight to seven and you're five games below 500 at 33 and 38. And is that the low watermark of the season? I believe it is. It is. Yeah, they were, they were 31 and 36 after losing on Tuesday to the Yankees. And now they're 33 and 38. So they're five games. I mean, we are approaching the midway point of the season and they are five games below 500. And they just don't have any area you can point to and say, this is, this is something we can hang our hats on. This is something that we're excited about if you're a Mets fan. Let's get some reaction from this afternoon's loss. Here's Buck Showalter again. The Mets are now 4-11 and in the month of June. And Buck was asked if he's worried that if this rut continues, and that's clearly what it is, is a rut. If it continues, do the guys feel as if they can't fight their way out of it? No, not at all. I'd be for everybody else to weigh in with that mindset our guys don't have that as 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 evidenced by the way they keep fighting through these things i don't think that's in their makeup and that's i think uh, these guys are very driven not to be common with even with mindsets that so many people might have but uh, that's not the way they're driven he mentioned fighting back a couple of times today which they did okay so what overall did buck showalter get out of today's loss the positive parts of keep battling back, guys really frustrated for them because you could tell how much put into getting back in that game and trying to cover some things that we were deficient at. Finally pushed through with Tommy, and we just couldn't push that other one across. And obviously we're short down the bullpen. Part of it, we knew we were going to have to score some runs today, and we did. And I, was, I was proud of that, so that's what I take out of it is you know, the way that, you know, I just, it's frustrating for me and everybody to not see these guys get a return for how much they're trying to get back to what uh, we, we could do as a team. They were down 5-1. to one. They came back to make it 5-4, uh, tied the game at 5, tied the game at 7 before St. Louis wins it on the Arenado home run, his second of the game in the top of the ninth inning off of Adam Adovino. Speaking of Adovino, the Brooklyn native, he spoke about the home run he gave up in the ninth. First homer I've allowed to a righty this year. First homer I've allowed on a sinker in two years. Sometimes you get beat by a great player, and it uh, really stinks um, in the moment, but you know, I'll come back with confidence the next time. It was interesting because Showalter pitched David Robertson in the eighth inning today, and he pitched Ottavino in the ninth. Now, Robertson's the closer, and he's been their best relief pitcher this season. And sometimes you'll see a manager do this, and I was listening to the broadcast with Howie Rose and Keith Radd, and they were trying to figure out what Buck may have been thinking. Sometimes you'll see a manager do that, pitches number one guy earlier in the eighth inning if you're facing the top of the order or the heart of the order for the other team. But that's not. They were facing eight, nine, and one in the Cardinals lineup. Robertson got him one, two, three. He also only threw eight pitches. And we're going to have Pat Ragazzo, who covers the Mets for SI.com, coming up in a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask him about what, if anything, Buck Showalter said about his 
usage of the bullpen because Robertson threw eight pitches in the eighth inning. That would imply that he can clearly come out and pitch the ninth in a tie ball game, one that you really need. Wondering if that's something that Buck Showalter continued. But the Mets fall 8-7. to seven. They lose two more games, two straight games to the Cardinals, one of the worst teams in baseball, one of the worst teams in the National League. And now things get a whole lot tougher for a team that is five games below 500, is searching for answers, and there don't seem to be a lot of them on that roster as they head to Houston and they head to Philadelphia on the heels of yet another series loss at City Field. We'll talk more about it as we continue. Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. This this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. Austin, they have the Sunday nighter up in Fenway Park. Luis Severino looking to bounce back from a couple of poor outings on the mound for the Yankees in that one. We'll follow that one along as uh, we continue throughout the evening. First, let's talk more about the Mets and where they stand right now. Uh, Frequent guest of the show, Pat Ragazzo, covers the Mets. Their beat writer for SI.com and joins us for a few minutes here on Sunday night. Pat, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Pat. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me on. Always great catching up with you, Pat. All right, let, let's get right to it. You thought that coming off the come-from-behind win over the Yankees, they earned the split of the Subway Series, and then you have a really cr- cleanly played victory on Friday night against the Cardinals team that we all know is struggling. So you're, you're looking for signs from this team Uh and, and turn the corner is a phrase that we've heard and we've used a lot regarding the Mets. And then just like that, they lose yesterday. They lose today. They drop the weekend series to the cards. Uh, I'll start with this. What is your takeaway from this weekend series? Well, it's just kind of been the same old story for the Mets through the first 70 games or so. Uh, they just haven't been able to find consistency. And, uh, you know, they wanted to string together two wins in a row on the second game of the Subway Series and then the first game of this series against the Cardinals. And that's because they got good starting pitching. And when their starters have gone six innings, they've gone 19-1 and one this year. Uh, you know, but then you look towards uh, Saturday and Sunday, and they just they haven't had the pitching. And the offense, uh, the offense showed up today, and the pitching didn't show up. And uh, when the pitching showed up yesterday, the offense didn't show up. And uh, it's just kind of been the team that hasn't been able to click uh, in, in several areas at the same time. And it's, and it's resulted in this poor record that they have so far being you know, now five games under five hundred. And that's their, their low water mark of the season. You, you look through the past trip to the rotation. Carrasco is not good today. Uh, Senga wasn't great yesterday. Uh, McGill and Verlander were very good in their starts. And then, obviously, Scherzer in the Subway Series opener was terrible. Couldn't protect a 5-1 lead. But the, the concerning thing that, that I see, Pat, and tell me what you think about this, is they don't ever seem to have a trip to the rotation, or at least they haven't in a long time, where four or five guys are clicking at the same time. And every trip to the rotation, it seems to be a different guy or two that's struggling. Yeah, no, that has been the case this year. And uh, the way this team was constructed, it was for Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander to be their two horses atop the rotation and to carry this team. And, um, you know, those those guys haven't been good enough. They haven't been consistent enough. And uh, the guys behind them also haven't, haven't shown consistency as well. And Sango, who's been up and down. And, uh, you know, McGill has been up and down as well. And Carlos Carrasco, who, you know, was poor today. Um, it's just the starting pitching just really is, is among the league worst. And, uh, and it's, it's really been the tale of woe this year and, and this, you know, this poor start. Verlander and Scherzer, you mentioned, that is the blueprint for this team to succeed. It does start with them. They're, they're two highest-paid pitchers. They're two highest-paid players. Do you see that in them, though? Do you see, from, from, from what you've observed so far through nearly three months of the season, 
is it still on the table that they can be the top of the rotation duo that the Mets need them to be? I think they've shown flashes. They've certainly shown flashes, and Scherzer's had his ups and downs this year, and uh, he was coming off a pretty good stretch until the last couple of starts now against Atlanta. He got beat up, and uh, and then, of course, against the Yankees, he had another poor start. Um, and, you know, Berlander pitched well his last time out. So I, I do think that it's still a possibility that these guys can, can kind of figure it out. But, uh, you know, time is running out here. We're, we're already in mid, mid to late June, and uh, they, they haven't pitched up to their expectations like, like the Nets were expecting. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 kinda, it's definitely obviously concerning, but, you know, it is, it is certainly possible that they could figure things out and maybe find some consistency here along the rest of the way. We haven't even gotten to the offense yet, which was good today, but has been inconsistent also. But let me ask you this, Pat. How did Pete Alonso get back so quickly? That's a great question. Uh, Pete Alonso was diagnosed on June 9th with a bone bruise and a sprained left wrist, and he was given a three- to four-week timeline for recovery. And from the time where Charlie Morton hit him with a 97-mile-per-hour fastball on June 7th, uh, it took Alonzo 11 days to make it back and, uh, and, and make it back in the lineup today. Um, I guess you could say that maybe it was uh, – the timeline maybe was a little bit conservative that, uh, that they gave him to, for recovery. And, um, you know, it was just a bone bruise and a, and a wrist brain. And, um, you know, obviously it was uh, – it seems like it was a lot more mild of an injury than initially diagnosed. So, uh, you know, it's great for the Mets because – Without Alonzo in the lineup, they looked overmatched and they lacked a true power threat. And now they got that back in their lineup. And uh, the Mets are going to turn things around. They're going to need Pete Alonzo to be in there in the cleanup spot, playing first base every single day. So, uh, so yeah. So it's it's hard to say uh, what happened there with Alonzo making it back in 11 days. But uh, you know, it's great news for the Mets, obviously. Outside of Alonzo, and he's produced um, when he's played. You know, obviously rough rough day today. Over four three strikeouts his first game back, but. Is there anybody who has been struggling that, at least to you, appears could be on the verge of turning things around, whether it's a Lindor or a Marte or an Escobar or a McNeil? I mean, these are all guys who this season have not performed up to their past and up to their expectations. Any of those guys, do you feel, is on the verge of turning things in a positive direction? Well, you hope that all of them are. I mean, you hope that Lindor, with the home run today, obviously he just gave his wife gave birth to his second daughter yesterday, and uh, you know he had a good day at the plate today, 13th home run of the season. He's up there with his home runs and RBIs, but the batting average, the on-base percentage, and the OPS have not been there. Um, so you hope that you know Lindor is turning the corner, and you hope that Jeff McNeil is gonna you know returning to the form of the player that won the batting title last year, and you hope that. Charlie Marte is the player that he was before he, he fractured his finger last year down the stretch of the season. Um, but but probably out of, out of those three, it's the Lindor probably seems like the most likely to be coming out of his funk right now, just off the you know the last couple of days, you know how he's been able to perform. But um, again, if the Mets are going to contend this year, if they're going to turn things around and be a playoff team, they're going to need all three of those guys to start producing the way that they did last season and the way that they're capable of. And having Alonzo back in the lineup behind Lindor, obviously, should help him anyway. Um, what did you think of Buck's usage of the bullpen late in this game? Mets clawed back a couple times. They showed fight today. They were down 5-1. They tie it at 5. They tie it at 7. And then Robertson, who's clearly been their best guy in the bullpen, he brings him 
in to pitch the eighth inning, and it's against eight, nine, and one, and he goes through them, and he only threw eight pitches. So there was a thought that maybe he'd come out and pitch the ninth and try two innings and lock them down for one more inning, but instead he goes Robertson eight, he goes Adovino in the ninth inning, and it's Adovino who ends up giving that home run up to Nolan Arenado. That was the difference. What did you think of the way Buck used his bullpen today? Well, it was certainly interesting, and there's a, there's some room, you know, for questioning there. Um, you know, they've used David Robertson in two inning situations this year a good amount. Um, that's something that Buck said that he does not want to do very often. So, can't say I blame him for not wanting to use him in a two inning situation again today. Um, but you know, there is there is some room there to say. You know, maybe David Robertson should have been saved for the ninth inning to face the heart of the order as opposed to 8-9-1 in the eighth inning. That Maybe that should have been left to Adam Ottavino. Now, Ottavino pitched yesterday, and he pitched really well, and he mowed through the middle of the order of the Cardinals. So, I guess Buck tried to go back to that well once again, and uh, they wound up getting burned, obviously, and, and it didn't work out as, uh, you know, Ottavino got beat by Arenado, uh, you know, for the go-ahead home run. So, yeah, there's there there is you know some there, there's some room there for some questioning on how the bullpen was used and you know maybe Robertson should have been used for the ninth as he has been for the most part this season um, but yeah uh, that wasn't the case and uh, you know Ottavino was sent back out sent out there in the ninth after you know Robertson had the quick ace and uh, it came back to bite the Mets. You know, Pat, we played the clip of Buck in the last segment. He was asked if he's concerned that if this rut continues, the guys will feel that they can't dig themselves out of this hole. And, look, we know what the Braves are. We know how many teams. There's, what, five teams in between the Mets and even the last wild card spot right now, and they're five games below 500. I mean, at, at what point do we start to feel that this has the potential to be a lost season? Is, is that is that a, a thought right now in that locker room? Um, I mean, from a player's standpoint, it can't be. I mean, you know, you can't. There's a long way to go in the season, and, and the players they can't give up. Uh, they got to keep playing, and they got to keep trying to go out there and grind and, and win every day. Um, but from our perspective, obviously, yeah, this this is starting to look like a lost season. And uh, the only glimmer of hope that you could have is you look back at the last couple of years. The Philadelphia Phillies were under 500 in June last year, fired their manager, and then went on a run and went to the World Series. And the Atlanta Braves. You know, we're, we're a losing team and in second place and third place and uh, struggling mightily, you know, through the majority of the 2021 season. And then they went on to win the World Series. And uh, the Washington Nationals in 2019 were also under 500 in May and June and uh, wound up getting hot and, and going to the World Series and eventually winning the World Series. So, um, yeah, I think that right now from, from our standpoint, it, it does look like it is a lost season, like this is a losing team, this is a bad team, uh, you know, uh, for the way that the Mets have played and the record shows, but uh, but from the player standpoint, they can't give up, and uh, you know they shouldn't give up. There's a, there is a long way to go, and uh, there is still a chance that they could turn things around. If there's one area, Pat, that you can pick that would help turn this season around, uh, whether it's an addition, and I don't even need a specific name, but the addition of a certain position or a certain player who's on the roster stepping up his game, like what what would you pinpoint? as the top area that needs to improve to turn things around? I would just say the consistency of the starting rotation. and um, You know, you hope that Jose Quintana, when he comes back, he's going to provide a boost to that rotation. Uh, he's on a rehab assignment right now. Uh, he just actually pitched his second rehab outing uh, for, for St. Lucie. So uh, I, I think that that's the number one thing, uh, you know, when you look at the New York Mets is 
they got to have, uh, you know, that starting pitching and they got to have that consistency in the rotation. And uh, like I said earlier in this conversation, uh, the Mets are 19 and one when they're starting pitching pitcher goes at least six innings. So uh, that kind of tells you the whole story right there. So uh, they need the starting pitching to perform the way that they're expected to. And uh, uh, you know, if that happens, then they should be able to climb back in the race. That is a telly number that 19 and one, when they go at least six, what, what about Quintana? Is there a chance that we see him on the Mets before the all-star break? I think it's realistic. I mean, he just threw his second rehab outing. Uh, you know, he's probably going to get at least five, I would say, because um, this is basically like his spring training. He's got to he's got to build his arm up. Um, so yeah, so I there's there's a chance that that you could see him before the All Star break. But I, then again, you know, I, I see the Mets not rushing him back, and maybe they'll wait till after that All Star break, uh, you know, to bring him back. But he is getting close, and that's good news for the Mets. All right, Pat, thanks so much. Always great catching up with you, and uh, we'll continue to follow along with you in this team. Thanks so much for having me, Pat. Really appreciate it. Pat Ragazzo covers the Mets, their beat writer for SI.com after uh, another loss at City Field today and a lost weekend series. The Cardinals are now 29-43, and 43, so they limped into City Field on Friday night with a record of 27-42. and 42. And they come in and take two out of three games against the Mets just when it looked like things were starting to uh, trend in the right direction for the Mets. Two straight wins, one over the Yankees, one over the Cardinals on Friday night to begin the series. And then just like that, it's literally two steps forward, two steps back for this team. And they are now five games below 500. And i got to be honest with you, I don't see, uh, I don't see a ton of answers on this roster right now. We'll get to your calls, 1-800-919-3776. My thoughts on where the Mets stand right now and where they could possibly go for answers to try to turn this thing around because it is getting late early in Queens. It's Pat O'Keefe on a Sunday night, Father's Day night on 98.7 ESPN New York.